Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Will Hodling, who is the founder and CEO of Strive. Strive helps emerging leaders reach their full potential through personalized and practical management training. And this company has raised almost $4 million from investors like Upfront Ventures. And then they made a massive pivot about a year into the company from something completely different into what Strive is today. And Will talks about that pivot, psychology behind it, how he's grown his team, how he's gone about growing the company management training, more more generally, education with his past experience at Minerva, and so much more. This episode is jam-packed. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. And without further ado, here is Will Hodling, the founder and CEO of Strive. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Excited to excited to be on. Yes, great to have you on. And I'm just talking about Strive and kind of your your experience, your background throughout this kind of last number of years. And what I want to know first is how did Strive get started? Yes. So uh, this is this is going to be a pretty long answer to begin. Uh, I can't wait. Let's but, do it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll try. I'll try to be a little more concise as we go. So I'm going to take like three steps back, go to the kind of Wikipedia early childhood entry, and then we're going to fast forward all the way up to the present. Um, so I've spent my whole life interested and passionate about education. I think it stems from a uh, family background. Uh, my dad was a teacher. He was actually my own fourth grade teacher 23 years ago. Um, I was in college. I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life. I, I was deciding between Teach for America and working in ed tech. I ended up deciding to go the tech route so that I could have hopefully a little more of an impact at scale. Uh, I worked at Google. I was there for four years at Google and YouTube, working largely on education initiatives. I ended up leaving Google after four years to join a startup called Minerva. Um, Minerva at the time had raised the largest seed round in Silicon Valley history pre-product with this crazy ambitious idea to build a world-class university from scratch. Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, was the chair of the chair of the board. Uh, the former dean of social sciences at Harvard was the founding dean of this brand new university. Um, I was there for three years. Fascinating experience. We grew from 20 to 120 employees, hired 50 faculty members, got accreditation, raised $50 million, uh, and enrolled hundreds of incredible students from all over the world. While I was there, I spent a lot of time thinking about the future of education um, and really thinking about how I could bridge the experience I had at Google and YouTube of building educational experiences for millions of learners with the experience that I had at Minerva of building educational experiences for these small classes of really ambitious kind of 18 to 22 year olds. Um, and kind of while at Minerva, I think the thing that I came back to over and over again was that while we were building an amazing undergraduate experience, uh, the model of ed- higher education that we have in our country is fundamentally broken. That yeah. we have a system of education that is to prepare, you, you have people study for four years, preparing them to work for 40 years. But when you look at the kind of increasing economic dynamism we have in society, people are changing not just jobs, but careers every five to 10 years. And so what we need is we need a system of education that is more like a scaffold around your job that allows you to climb up the corporate ladder to the next job and career you need than a separate institution that you go away to for four years and then come back to the working world. So my kind of very high level mission and vision when I started Strive was to build a university for working learners to help people take their job and translate that into their classroom where the problems they face every day become the curriculum for their personal and professional development. 
Um, so that was kind of the original motivation and genesis for Strive. Um, and now why I say it's a long story, that already is pretty long, <laughs> but why I say it's a particularly long story is what we started out doing at Strive is not what we're doing today. So I had the same kind of North Star, but it was focused on a pretty different audience than we're working on today. When I first started, we were trying to help non-college grads get access to middle-class jobs. Only about 30% of Americans have a college degree, um, yet about, about 50 to 60% of knowledge economy jobs require one. So my belief right. is that there's this large population of high-potential, low-credential Americans who are currently in hourly jobs, highly at risk to AI and automation over the course of the next decade. And my belief was through a combination of competency-based assessments and precision education and last mile training, we could provide pathways to middle-class family-supporting careers, not just hourly jobs, for this huge swath of high-potential, low-credential Americans. So that was kind of the original path of Strive. It was a competency-based hiring and training platform. So again, still preparing people for the jobs of the future, but um, really focused on entry-level knowledge economy jobs, and we were focused on sales to begin. And so that's that's what I started Strive to do. Um, that was back in February of 2017, so about three and a half years ago. Um, and kind of happy, if, if interesting for you and for the audience, happy <laughs> to talk through kind of the evolution from uh, Strive 1.0 to Strive 2.0. Uh, but that was kind of, that's how it kind of came to be. Yeah, I, I, w I would be curious about that as a starting point, especially uh, to get an idea of how you did transition from my first version to what you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to be a little bit more specific about the first iteration of Strive, so as I said, competency-based hiring and training. So what that practically meant was that people would take an assessment. Um, the assessment would measure cognitive personality and job-specific skills based on the results. We would either introduce them to employers, so like a common app for entry-level jobs, or we would suggest kind of targeted last mile training programs. So for example, if you're applying for a sales job, you take our test and we identify that you're not proficient in Salesforce, we might suggest a two hour online Salesforce course. Yeah. So that was the general concept. Um, when I launched, we had three customers. Uh, it was me working out of my living room. Uh, we didn't write, <laughs> I didn't write a line of code. I don't know how to write a line of code. So the website was built on Wix. The, uh, the database was a Google spreadsheet. Uh, I kind of ran the whole thing through a series of Zapier integrations and mail merges and like faked what a real website and platform would do um, and got three customers, got up to about $30,000 a month in revenue. Uh, so I was working with those three customers. Um, the biggest, and when I started, I created this spreadsheet of what are my hypotheses that need to be true in order for this to be a billion dollar business. And I ranked those hypotheses by the importance of the hypothesis and the confidence that I had that it was right. The highest importance, lowest confidence hypothesis I had was that we could systematically convince hiring managers to hire non-traditional candidates. We validated that, that, that hypothesis by looking at the intro to offer ratio. So what percent of people that we introduced to a company got a job offer? If that number yeah. was high, it meant that people were trusting our tests over trusting somebody's resume and their performance in interview, which is really based on likability, and there's a lot of unconscious bias. Our first three customers, we had a 40% intro to offer ratio. Making $30,000 a month, everything was going great. Raised a seed round um, led by Karen Nortman at Upfront Ventures, who's amazing. Uh, it's been a great partner for me on this journey. A lot of other great, great investors. Um, K-Port Capital, Ryan Craig at Union Square, uh, sorry, at um, University Ventures, um, Next View Ventures, et cetera. And we decided to scale. So we went from, you know, hired out the team, 
we went from three customers to 25 customers in one quarter. Jeez. And in doing so, the model broke. Uh, so again, <laughs> we really were focused on that intro to offer ratio. That went from 40% with our first three customers to 4% with our next 22 customers. Uh, and the big reason for that was that the first three customers trusted us and they trusted me. There were people that I knew. We then went out to people that had never heard of me before and never heard of Stride before. They were just taking a chance. And at the end of the day, we could not convince people to drop their hiring practice and approach based on resume, which is really a function of like pedigree and based on interviews, likability, and instead hire our way, which was really more data driven with these competencies and training. So um, that was probably the hardest 12 months of my career from the moment we raised money to the moment we decided to pivot was about 12 months of scaling, hiring out the team, like people putting their trust and faith of their careers in me, which I definitely didn't take lightly, and then it not working. And, you know, I think that over the course of those 12 months, I probably have been more despondent and frustrated and discouraged professionally than I ever have in my career. Uh, so after about 12 months of it, we said, okay, this just is not working. We have a great team. We have lovely investors. We have wonderful investors. We luckily still have a lot of money in the bank. And so we pivoted. Um, and so we spent about two months kind of back in the wilderness of ideas, looking at <laughs> different ideas adjacent to what we originally were doing, kind of with the same North Star in mind of building this university for working learners. Um, and what we ended up settling on through a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of user interviews, and ultimately a lot of like soul searching and kind of what do you actually care about in the shower? What's the first thing you're thinking about when you wake up? Uh, what we ended up settling on was management training and leadership development. Uh, so that's what we're doing now. We help we help companies train and transform their managers into leaders. Uh, and we do that through a kind of cohort-based approach that combines people, technology, um, some kind of be behavioral science to help people learn as much as possible on the job about how to be a better leader. There's a few things I want to go back to. And thanks for, thanks for sharing that first off, Will. And one Absolutely. of the things is, this is a really tough thing I'm sure to go through, but in those 12 months, you raise, you know, you raise a few million dollars from some top level VCs and you're building this out. You're scaling this, this company off of an idea you had that you, you had some proof of concept. You had three customers. It was working. How, I mean, I guess my question would be at, at what point do you actually get to the point where you say we have to pivot? Cause there's so many things that happened leading up to that. I'm sure there were maybe some signs that led up to it, but what was the thing that actually got you to this, to, to change yeah, so so I'll, I'll give the answer. There's like an intellectual answer, and then there's a, a more kind of primal answer. So the intellectual answer was that at the beginning of this journey, we created this spreadsheet. We had, you know, I think of a, a startup as a science experiment where you have a bunch of hypotheses, and the goal is you want to just positively test your kind of most important hypotheses first. You want to do the hard stuff first. If you do the easy stuff, you can create kind of a, a false sense of progress and hit a local maximum where you get stuff. So. We knew what the hardest thing to test was, can we change hiring managers' behavior and get them to evaluate candidates in a totally different way? If we could, we could build a huge company. If we couldn't, we're going to die. Uh, yeah. And so there's an intellectual answer, which is like, we had this startup, we had this this um, spreadsheet, we had these hypotheses, and we were tracking metrics against those. And we report on those metrics internally to the team, um, as well as to the, to the investors uh, once a quarter. Um, so that's the intellectual answer. The, the kind of primal answer of like, when did you actually know though? Because uh, you don't actually know very many things by looking at a spreadsheet. You can always like squint at the numbers from different angles yeah. and tell yourself different stories. Um, we had a weekly customer success meeting where we would go through all of our customers and everybody was ranked um, red, yellow, green. 
And it was it's like a brutal meeting because like our customers <laughs> didn't like us. And it was like pretty clear they didn't like us. And you know, like our own customers wouldn't answer our emails. And you know, we would have candidates who we passed to them for interviews that they wouldn't talk to for two weeks and all this stuff. And so um, this meeting was like very tense every week. And there were four of us on, on the team that did it together. And then finally, um, one week we're in the middle of this meeting and uh, I made a joke that I think it was around when there was when Dreamforce was. Um, I made a joke that like if we had Dreamforce, we would if we had a Strive version of Dreamforce, we would actually have a panel where we put all of our customers on stage and we um, had them talk about how much they hate Strive, um, and we would have them rank who here hates Strive the most. Uh, and I like started like laughing uproariously. It was kind of like the first time that I truly admitted to myself and to the team that it wasn't working, and it was this like kind of cathartic release because in a startup there's so much tension, and I think that. I can talk a little bit more about the founder psychology, but I think that for type A driven people who start companies, inevitably the startup becomes them and they become the startup. And I think that I had so much of my personal identity um, caught up in the success of Strive that I was like unwilling to admit for probably three months longer than I should have that Strive wasn't working because I took that so personally as that means that I am not working. I am not a successful person. And I think finally in this meeting, I like laughed literally until I cried. And the people on the team were like, dude, what's going on? Is he having a break right now? And then after that, I was just like, all right, we're pivoting. Like, let's be real, guys. This is not working. And I think everybody on the team was like, duh, dude. Like, you've been making us run at a wall for the last, I think, you know, you've been making us run at a wall for the last six weeks. And we know it's not working. So uh, let's let's do this. And I think people on the team by then were actually pretty happy um, to pivot. Although it's obviously you're pivoting into like an abyss of what's next. Um, and so we called, I think the next week we called 23 of 25 customers and we were like, Hey, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. And that was actually kind of an affirming thing because none of them really fought back. They were like, Oh, okay. And then like, there were two customers we decided to keep. Uh, we had one person on our team basically handle those people individually because we thought that they were big names and there was potential for those customers to transition into what we were doing in our next business and we could maintain a positive relationship, which in the end, we didn't transition into our new business. So when we started Strive V2, we like started truly from scratch. No customers. We threw out all of our old code. We actually chose a different coding stack for our, for our second iteration. So it was, a, it was a true pivot. And with that too, in that process of, of pivoting, what are those conversations like with, with your investors at that, at that point? Because you have some pretty big investors on, on board there. What are they telling you? Or what are you hearing from them? Or what's that discussion like as you're saying, hey, we're literally going to pivot to like something completely different, essentially, and this model is not working. I'm I'm curious about like those conversations too. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I wrote up. So this is probably like October of 2018. It was about a year after we had raised the seed round. Um, and I think over the course of the last couple of investor updates and board meetings, I had given Kara and the rest of our investors an indication that Strive wasn't working, um, but. Uh, I was super nervous, right? This is my first startup. I've, you know, my last, the last company I joined is employee 20. So I saw the experience and I saw that zero to one and one to 10 phase, but I wasn't in the driver's seat for it. And I didn't really know how people were going to respond. Um, and I think two, two kind of anecdotes that I'll share. Uh, the first was when I told the investors broadly, I think everybody was way more supportive than I expected them to be. Nobody was like, I thought people were going to say, like, can you give us our money back? Like, we, we, we've lost trust in you. But I think that the name of the game for early stage companies is you're investing in the founder, the team, the vision, the passion. You're not investing in the specific, like, turn by turn directions that they've 
outlined in the original deck to achieve that vision. So our North Star, our why was still the same as original. Um, yeah. You know, we want to provide a, a we want to create a university for working learners. We want to create education for uh, uh, to prepare people for the jobs of the future. They're still investing in the same like broad direction. They're still investing in the same team. We were just like, hey, our last turn by turn directions like actually drove us into a lake. Like we're stopping and we're going to like re- reassess. Um, and most investors were like, cool, sounds good. What's next? Uh, <laughs> but I was like, I was shocked by that generally. Um, and I think it's a good reminder for early stage founders that like you hold your startup so near and dear to your heart. Your investors have portfolio theory. They've invested in 10 to 50 different companies and they're here to support you on the journey and they're not going to kind of lambast you for, for making changes. They're going to probably encourage those. Um, the, the second anecdote that I'll, that I'll share about that pivot experience was with Kara, our lead investor. I wrote a postmortem document. We were having a board meeting and uh, I sent it to her maybe a week in advance and it was uh, a 20 page document. It was about 10 pages on what went wrong with Strive V1 and why it didn't work out. It was about five pages on the ideas that we've considered. And it was five pages on the direction that we're most likely to take, which was around management training, leadership development. So I sent her this document. I said, hey, long document, gives you a lot of context. Can you read it before our board meeting? I want to talk through it. And she writes back the next day uh, with like a, sh- a pretty short email. And the email said, hey, Will, uh, thank you so much for this incredibly thorough analysis as always. Um, here's my feedback for you. And it was like three bullet points. The first bullet point was um, do overthink. The second p- bullet point was heart over brain. Uh, and the third bullet point was earned insights over researched ones. And she said, like, basically, that's my advice for you. And <laughs> let's talk about it when we meet. And at first I got the email and I was like, WTF? Like, <laughs> I just wrote her a Twitter like, what? <laughs> and she sends me back like three VC fortune cookies. Like, what is yeah. this? Uh, but instead, I realized it was like the best advice that anybody's ever given me, which is like, get out of your own head. Don't be a startup professor, be a startup founder. Like if you can read something in a JSTOR journal article, everybody else can read it too. You're not going to build a startup on that. Like you're going to build a startup on the secrets that you discover and you discover the secrets by rolling up your sleeves and getting out into the world. Um, and so like you can spend forever trying to map the perfect startup on paper, but ultimately like as you found it's drive one, the rubber hits the road when like an actual customer is in front of you and they actually have to use your product. So do overthink. Um, and then also kind of like heart over brain and the direction you choose next, like the air bars on the different ideas you're considering are all overlapping. You are not able to perfectly predict what's going to work and what isn't. Do the thing that you wake up excited about and you go to sleep dreaming about and like follow your heart in that way. And so I think that was actually like, I think great investors are like executive coaches as yeah. much as they are, you know, like strategy gurus. And I think that was like a great, testament i think to kara's ability to like cut through the noise and like actually talk to me as a human not talk to me as a person who can write a lot of spreadsheets and google docs kind of thing with that too looking at the version two of strive then i mean there's a lot of ways you can go about management training helping them get into turn into leaders with the curriculum with the things you offer them with the tools with everything i'm just curious how did you look at that as what you would offer kind of initially what you saw this being that would be most helpful for, for your audience and for your potential customers. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, uh, the motivation for kind of how we approach 
management training, I think is really born of three experiences. I think the first is it's born of some of the work that I did at Google and YouTube on how do you, um, how do you create educational experiences at scale? Uh, so there I was working on YouTube for EDU, um, at, uh, you know, these like huge video libraries, but also working on hangouts integration partnerships with places like Coursera and Udacity. So the idea of like take a hundred thousand people studying introductory computer science, break them into cohorts of 10 for them to talk. So that was kind of like one motivation uh, and, and experience. The second was my experience at Minerva of building these, uh, Minerva has built its own version of Zoom. It's like Zoom on steroids specifically for education called the Active Learning Forum. And it's all about how do you create active learning experiences? And then how do you motivate students to um, apply what they have learned in class over the course of the next of their four years? So uh, there's this idea in learning science called FAR transfer. You only know something once you can apply it in a novel context. So we thought a lot about how do we create FAR transfer in management training? Um, and then the third was actually my teammate, Troy, who's like a long, long time friend of mine. And he, prior to working at Strive, he uh, had worked at LinkedIn and he had created a program at LinkedIn for diverse leaders to try to diversify the kind of management and senior management layers of the company. And that was really a cohort based program. So I think that it was kind of like a soup of those three experiences, I think, largely motivated the, the path that we took. Um, yeah. With that, too, then. So how are you going about acquiring your first customers then with pivoting to a different business? within Strive, essentially, how'd you go about acquiring customers, understanding who you want to, to work with for this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we actually decided at first, we don't want to do any traditional customer acquisition. We really just want to spend like six months in the lab, so to speak, uh, building out the best possible management training leadership development experience. And so uh, we launched in January of 2019, our first, what we called leadership circle. Um, and so that was a basically a three month long program uh, where we would create a cohort of about 15 people. They would meet every other week, some combination of, of in-person. We actually just like hosted these at our office um, and then some combination uh, so in-person and then over Zoom. And every single month they would study a different leadership skill as a group together. Um, we hosted, we did two tracks. So we had one track, which was for women in tech. Uh, and we had one track, which was for um, underrepresented minorities. Uh, and so those are the two audiences. Uh, and every single month, we would launch one cohort of each. And it was this kind of perfect um, testing ground because it was a forcing function where every month we basically have a new product re release. So like, and, and when I say product release, I, I say that like lowercase p, product, not just technology, but product being everything that a user touches in their experience working with Strive. So yeah. we would launch a new curriculum module one month. We would launch a new... 360 assessment platform. We would launch a new playlist for learning so that people could do asynchronous learning in between the sessions. We would launch um, application challenges so that people after class could take what they learned and apply it in the real world. Uh, we would launch a dashboard so they could follow their learning journey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we basically did like six months of those, what we called them circles, um, each of them being three months long. We did six months of them. We had done 12 of them total. We had had about 100 learners. And then we picked our heads up in June of that year and said, okay, is it working? Like, And we did a really thorough job surveying. We looked at our NPS. We looked at how disappointed would people be because they could no longer continue learning through Strive. Um, and that is what, uh, in June of last year, we decided then to do enterprise and to scale. So our model was like we were we called B2C to B. 
We went to consumers. They would pay for it. It was $2,000 per person for three months. Um, but uh, it was a sliding scale. And we would charge them as much as they were willing or uh, unwilling to pay. And so the average person, I think, paid about like $1,200. Um, and we got people from like tons of different companies. So you know, people would sign up and a cohort would be 10 people from 10 different companies. Um, and then that gave us kind of a list of companies to reach out to with advocates and champions already internally. Um, of, you know, and so I was saying, you know, of our first 10 customers, customers, maybe three of them came through those student referrals where somebody had gone through the open enrollment version of this learning journey. Um, and they then said to their HR team, Hey, we really should bring this in house. It was an awesome learning experience. Um, so that, that's what happened with Intuit, one of our first customers, for example, Intuit, super big company, really hard to break into as a startup, but because we had had people go through our open enrollment program, they advocated for us on the inside. Um, so that was kind of how we went about our kind of early customer testing and, and getting our first customers. And then beyond that, I think there's no, there's no real tricks to it. Just like <laughs> once we went enterprise, there was a lot of elbow grease. It was, you know, reaching out to kind of anybody who I knew um, that worked at our target uh, customer segment. So kind of like companies, our original target was like companies between 200 and a thousand employees, that kind of like high growth kind of series C stage tech company. And uh, anybody I knew who worked there, anybody who Troy knew who worked at those companies and asked for intros to HR. So you kind of like, just got to be shameless about that. Of course. And with the open enrollment too, was that working your network as well to get those kind of first people in there? Or how did you get people for that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first like, uh, yeah, the first month was like, pull anybody off the bench you could, right? It was like, <laughs> I, you know, my wife's sister is an engineering manager. And I was like, yo, Sarah, can you do me a solid and, yes. and join this cohort? And like, you know, my, my former roommate is, uh, you know, marketing manager at Google. And I was like, can you join? And like, you kind of, I think in every founder experience, you're calling in like a decade, hopefully of goodwill and, uh, and friendships to call on because it really takes a village to, to build these things. Um, and so I think that first cohort was like 80%, probably it was 80% friends and then 20% friends of friends. And then as we scaled, it was more word of mouth. We started doing like cold outreach. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of how it, how it grew. And I think that starting with like those affinity groups was really important. Um, so like Troy had done a bunch of work, as I said, at LinkedIn about diverse leaders. And so having that as like a focal point early I think was like an important differentiation. And it's actually like a, still a very core part of our DNA. Uh, about a third of our business now is uh, still diverse leader programs. Um, that's actually a, a part of our business that's growing faster than probably the core management training um, experience. With your with your company too, with Strive then, you also have, I mean, you have a stellar team of not only the team, the advisors and everyone. How have you gone about growing that, building that team? That's that's essentially like the fundamentals of the, of the business is having that knowledge and have that expertise. How have you gone about building that, Will? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that uh, hiring is you know, probably the single most important thing that early stage companies can do. And I think the line is like your first 10 employees hire your next 100 um, if, if you know, you're so fortunate to get to that point where you're hiring your next 100. So I think it's definitely something that we focused on. Um, I think coming from our original idea where we were competency-based hiring and training, we're kind of particularly rigorous and focused in how we hire. Um, I think the one thing that I would say that I'm really proud of is that that rigor and that uh, uh, kind of analytical approach, I think, has probably rooted out some unconscious bias that you see a lot 
in early stage startups where it's people hiring friends of theirs. Our team is 80% plus uh, uh, women or underrepresented minorities, which is pretty rare for early stage startups founded by a, a white man like myself. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely been something that we focus on. Um, yeah, I think that there's no, again, like I think a lot of the startup world, you would hope that there's secrets. Like there aren't a lot of great secrets. It's just, you know, get out there, ask all of your, ask all of your friends for references. I mean, ask all of your friends for referrals, post on all the platforms, create a really rigorous evaluation process where you're doing kind of structured interviews and work sample tests to try to root out any unconscious bias in the traditional interview process. Um, and like, just be prepared to see a lot of candidates and to, you know, and, and, and to interview uh, a ton of people and kind of not settle until, until you hit your bar. So that's been this area. Yeah. Can you go a little bit deeper into the, the, the some of that rigor? You kind of mentioned a little bit there, but I, I am curious because for others who are, you know, looking to meet, implement some of these things or really be more rigorous, rigorous with their hiring processes and really trying to, uh, you know, get unconscious bias out of the picture as well. Like what are some of those things you're doing or what are some of the questions you're asking or anything around that you think would be helpful for others as they're building their teams as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, there are generally three approaches that, uh, based on kind of all of the research we studied in, in building Strive V1, there are kind of three approaches that are by far most predictive of job success. Uh, and then there's one approach that everybody uses that is not at all predictive. So the approach that everybody uses that is not at all predictive is interviewing people in an unstructured way. Um, which is basically like if this podcast or an interview, right? Where just a conversation between two people, it feels very fluid. Uh, it is a fun interview to conduct. It is a fun interview to participate in as a candidate. At the end, you leave feeling a connection to the individual. Uh, but by the end, the person who did the interview is just giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's largely dependent on did they like the other person? And then somewhat, do they think the other person is smart? Was the other person able to think on their feet effectively? Um, so we try not to do any unstructured interviews in our evaluation process. Uh, the three things that are predictive of, uh, are most predictive of job performance uh, are a cognitive ability test. Um, so cognitive ability tests are kind of controversial. We did them early on uh, as part of Strive product. When we pivoted, we stopped doing them for hiring uh, for reasons I can go into. But the second thing that we that that is predictive of job performance is work sample tests. So give someone a take home assignment that looks like the job itself. Um, we do time boxed. So it's three hours. You tell us a time that you want to start. We schedule an email to go to you at that time and you send it to us three hours later. Uh, we do three hour take homes for every role. Um, obviously, you have to do it kind of towards the end of the process, right before the final round, not like the yeah. first thing because people need to be bought into the position of the company in order to do it. But we found that that gives us a really important signal on how somebody actually solves real world problems, not just how they talk about it. Um, by time boxing it, we make it so that it's not just the people who have a lot of time are the ones who do well and we don't penalize like, you know, parents or, or people who are in jobs currently or whatnot. Um, so that's the thing that we do. And then the final thing we do is the structured interviews. The so structured interviews are basically you just decide what are the competencies, what are the skills that you're looking for, for the role. Um, and then you ask every single candidate the exact same questions. Um, and those questions have to align specifically to skills that you're looking for. Uh, and so we have like in our panel interview, each person is focused on one category of skills. Uh, and so they, they just get practice doing the same interview over and over again. And you're not making a judgment on the candidate's application as a whole. You're making a judgment on the candidate's ability on that specific category of skills. 
And with that, you've been obviously able to use that to then build out your team and and yeah. has allowed you to build some pretty interesting things with, with Strive. And you mentioned working with enterprise clients eventually getting to that point after kind of the open enrollment sort of uh, process as well then. And with the enterprise clients then, like what is that sell to them? Like they're, what's the ROI they're getting out of out of using Strive? I'm just curious on what that is on that side of things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that um, great managers build great companies. Is the is the short one liner that immediately resonates? Uh, people don't quit companies; they quit managers. So, what we say is the quality of your managers is the single most important variable for your company's performance, employee engagement, and retention. Uh, retention of employees. Um, most people are bad managers. So, fifty percent of Americans have quit a job to get away from a manager. Sixty-five percent of Americans uh, survey would rather have a new manager than receive a raise. Uh, and this isn't because people want to be bad managers. People like aren't inherently evil, obviously. Uh, because management's <laughs> really difficult, right? Like we are, we go to school for decades, and we study biology and chemistry and economics and English literature. But somehow we're never taught how to work with other people. We're never taught how to have hard conversations. We're never taught um, how to empower rather than micromanage. Like, and, and even in business schools, they don't really do this, right? GSB probably kind of the most well-respected business school right now, their most popular class is called touchy-feely. And that's just a sign of like, this is the stuff that people really want to learn. It's, it's essential to learn, yep. but most people don't teach it very well. And so that's a broad sale that we make to companies. And then there's a question of, okay, so now we're bought in on management. How do you all do it? Um, and our belief is that the hardest part of management training is not absorbing content, which is how most people historically have approached it, it's really motivating people to apply the skills that they've learned in the real world. So most people who do management training, you do a workshop or maybe you have a leadership offsite or maybe your company is more um, forward thinking and you have an online learning platform where you can watch a bunch of videos. Um, we believe that abs absorption of content is only one step in a kind of learning journey. So really what you want is you want people to reflect on how they perform today. You want them to then absorb content in the areas they need to improve. You want them to then practice that in a low stakes environment. Right? So there's no real concept of practice in most management training. Yet, you know, you would have never imagined that an NBA team would learn a play for the first time and then just like do it the next day in a game. Um, and then ultimately you want them to apply it in the real world. So that that kind of learning cycle, which is built on uh, kind of the Keegan theory of adult development, that is kind of key to what we do. And we've built a bunch of technology that helps to facilitate that learning cycle, really encourage people to, uh, to to learn and to apply in that way. With that, and thinking from the, the business side of this, I'm, my mind's going to, okay, obviously this is this is so valuable with, with these other people who are going to build these companies. How do you go about thinking about pricing and the business model behind this and how that's going to all work, knowing the amount of value you're offering to these enterprise clients? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think it's honestly like a part where um, we, I, I'm not an expert on pricing and I don't think that we've done a tremendously thorough job on this so far. Uh, the way that we charge right now is we charge per manager per year. Okay. Uh, and it's a combination of, uh, the live synchronous zoom based classes. So people get into a cohort, they take a 360 assessment, 360 assessment evaluates them on 20 different learning competencies. Uh, they then meet with a coach to review that. They decide the professional development plan. We put them into a cohort. The cohort, they study um, three skills, one skill per month that's been selected by the company. And then they do nine months of independent learning where every month they submit a different problem they're facing. 
and we provide them curriculum, worksheets, et cetera, uh, material around that. And then we uh, connect them with somebody else at their company who's an expert in that topic is validated by the 360 for peer learning. So that's kind of what the, the year-long learning journey looks like. And, and then at the end of the year, they do an updated version of the 360 so they can see how they've improved. Now, we then will report to the companies that have hired us. And so, you know, we work primarily, as I said, with growth stage tech companies. So places like Chime or Confluent or Guild, Trip Actions. But we also work with some larger companies, Slack, um, Airbnb, Intuit, et cetera. Uh, for those companies, we do more of the diverse leader program that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so to the companies, we can report on engagement. So our people participating in these learning journeys? Are they uh, showing up to the, to the live classes? Are they doing the application challenges? Uh, we report on reaction. So do people enjoy this? Uh, I think that millennials, the number one thing that they look for in a company is career development opportunities. And so it's like people enjoying the learning increases their attention. Third, we look at skill development. Did going through the program actually improve somebody's ability to have a hard conversation? Did it actually improve their strategic thinking? Um, and that's validated by the 360 assessment from from other people around them at the beginning and the end. And then ultimately, we look at impact on the company. Um, so did this transform the company's performance, engagement, and retention? So that that's kind of how we evaluate it right now. It depends. Uh, from a pricing perspective, it's like about $1,000 to $2,000 per person per company, depending on some kind of customization and some the, the kind of balance of live and asynchronous. And, and with that too, as you're going through this and you're getting feedback from, from people and how much they're using it, how engaging it is, everything within that then, how frequently are you adapting the program, the curriculum, everything you're doing on that side of things as you're getting this, this feedback then? Yeah, I mean, I think constantly probably, um, uh, I think folks on the team would probably complain that I'm, I'm uh, pushing us to change it too quickly or too regularly. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of constantly looking at how people are learning, how they're using the platform, which curriculum modules they're enjoying, which curriculum modules they're not, using that to prioritize what we update, et cetera. I mean, I think that part of the um, part of the the beauty, I guess, in what we do is that there's like actually an outcome that we can track, which is skill development over time, um, as well as an outcome of participant um, engagement. And then we can actually, you know, run a bunch of different uh, uh, models and analysis to say, what are the components of what we do that really move the needle? Um, and as we're starting to scale and, you know, we're at 20 plus customers now, like as we're starting to scale, we have more data to be able to run those models and we can perfect what the right recipe is for corporate training um, and for people learning on the job, et cetera. And so the hope is that we can then kind of tweak the technology, the curriculum, the, the program design experience to build over time this kind of constantly improving uh, approach to management training leadership skills. And to the point of you mentioned like just a second ago about about scaling and then something you had you talked about earlier with with getting enterprise clients just rolling up your sleeves and starting to do outreach, what does that look like like now as you look to the future of of growing Strive in terms of how you're acquiring new customers, getting new enterprise clients on the platform as you're trying to scale and trying to grow this? Like, how do you look at acquisition and growth at this point then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think this is really where kind of Troy is the maestro. Um, uh, so he, you know, as I say, spent seven years at LinkedIn, did sales, yeah. marketing, partnerships. Um, and I think that he really understands this enterprise buyer. Uh, and so I think we're putting a bunch of, bunch of different processes in place right now. We're just starting to scale on the, uh, on the marketing side. If there's any listeners out there who are interested in 
kind of growth marketing, marketing operations, et cetera. Um, we're going to be opening a rec for that soon. Um, so, so definitely reach out. Uh, the, the, I think there's like the bread and butter approach, the kind of traditional SDR load outreach, cold outreach, plus, you know, cold calls, plus follow up, et cetera. Um, so I think we're going to try some of that. Uh, and the other kind of category that we're focused on is content. So we have all this incredibly interesting curriculum, or interesting to me at least, curriculum on how to be a better manager. How can we turn that into a content marketing strategy to kind of actually bring in leads? Um, and then the third path is really more thinking about community. So um, I think right now people are craving uh, 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 meaningful professional connections. Like nobody's going to conferences, nobody's going to association meetings, et cetera. Right, right. And so how can we create community experiences for people online to connect around topics they're passionate about? So uh, Troy and Joyce, uh, someone on our team launched uh, a series of conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so it's just strive.co slash DEI conversations. And about once a week, we have a different expert leading a discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is something that really matters a lot to our company. And we've done a bunch of work in training companies on. Um, and so that's like an example of a community-based conversation that then can turn into a marketing program as participants who go through those say, hmm, this is actually really interesting. And uh, with with absolute zero bias, I say you should start a podcast as well. Just just putting it out oh. there. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to. I don't want to cut out. But yeah, no, I think you know it's actually funny you say that. We were thinking about starting a podcast back in Q one, uh, uh, and then when COVID hit, we were like, shoot, I bet podcast listening will go way down. And so we kind of this this instead decided to focus on these conversations. But it might be something we pick up again. So. Absolutely. And of course, those conversations can always be broken down into audio. If you have that, if you have the conversations anyways, it's not, it's, you can repurpose them, which is always top down from, from video, moving to audio, moving to written word and et cetera, which is uh, part of the whole content strategy as well. And, and, and Will, as a, as a first time founder, I mean, what has been, what what have been maybe like the biggest challenge uh, as a first time founder, as you've been growing stride the last, you know, three and a half years, pivoting a company, growing a team, there's so many different things. Like what for you has kind of been some of the, maybe the biggest challenges for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first challenge is kind of psychological. And, you know, I'm a first time founder. I'm also a solo founder. Um, and I think as the case with many founders, like type A driven, ambitious, like I've been gold star chasing my whole life. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you get to a startup and like, there's kind of like the gold stars are ostensibly the fundraising rounds. Because um, that's the moment where you can like publicize and everybody else is like, oh, my God, you're crushing it. But like, you're not going to, you know, hit, a, you're not going to get some internal metric and then post on LinkedIn about it. And so there's just less, I think there's a little bit less kind of celebration. Um, and uh, I think that's been, that was tough for me in the first year and a half or so um, that it did feel pretty solitary. Um, and then I think when it stopped working, it felt, as I mentioned earlier, it kind of felt like the the weight of the world coming down on me and like, really kind of reevaluating, am I a failure? Am I the problem? Is it like not a bad idea, but it's actually a bad, it's like, I'm the, I'm the part that's broken here. Uh, and so I think that it was definitely a difficult transition, pivoting and getting over the kind of personal challenge. I worked with a great executive coach, um, uh, uh, Dr. Cameron Seppa, who is actually based in LA. He's starting his own company now, but he was phenomenal. And he did like tremendous work to help me overcome some of those hurdles and also kind of work better with the team. Um, I think the second piece that I would call out that's been a challenge is just actually my own management. Um, I considered myself when I was at Google, when I was at Minerva, I considered myself a good manager. I had really strong relationships with people on my team. Um, I'm still in touch with many of those people to this day. I'm sure 
I wasn't always perfect. Nobody is, but like I generally thought that I was a good manager. Uh, <laughs> and then I think at Strive, it's in a startup, it's really hard. Like it, it matters so much to me that, you know, things that went wrong at Minerva or Google, I would like very clearly view as learning experiences. Um, but at Strive, it like, you know, when things go wrong, it's like hard for me to have that distance. And so sometimes I grip the wheel too tight. Um, and so I think that that's been a challenge. Uh, and the third challenge, um, in my past work, I had been in kind of general management roles. I had done, um, you know, marketing partnerships, sales, operations, curriculum development, program design. And I had done maybe some, I'd done some product work, uh, when I was at Google and working with kind of like two product teams and building products, but it wasn't really my primary focus. And so I think I have an amazing engineering lead, Shane who he and I have a great relationship that, that we've developed over time. But I do think that that has been one of the parts of the puzzle that's been more difficult to me, really around kind of like engineering expectations. Um, and so we have a great PM, Max Borowitz, uh, and a great product designer, Felicia, um, and then a great engineering team. And so everything is generally working well, but I think that that has been another area that's taken me some adjustment to get to. And thinking about Strive then, thinking about how you've pivoted, you know, you pivoted after a year or so, and you obviously found something now that seems to be working. I mean, what's, what's the big vision for Strive? Like, what, what do you ultimately want to do with, with Strive? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that the, at the high level, um, we're building a gym for learning. So we're building a way for people in the same, like, I think a lot about the parallels between exercise and education. Um, and I think that we are building really a gym for learning where people can come in and on their first day, they do an extensive diagnostic. Uh, right now, the diagnostic is limited to leadership skills. Over time, you can imagine that diagnostic being not just leadership skills, but functional skills in your area. Uh, you know, you meet with an executive coach, aka you meet with like a personal trainer, and you get a path for where do you want to go? What are the things that you need to develop to accelerate your career, to reach the next step, to find meaning, fulfillment, and belonging at work? What do you need to develop? And then we have a kind of path of different options for how you can learn and improve to match both your time, your energy, and your money investment. So we would have the like treadmill experience where, hey, if you want to do something self-paced, here are a bunch of exercises that you can do on your own, watch a video, take a quiz, do an exercise. We have the group classes where you join a cohort. I'm somebody who's motivated by being in a group of people. I want to join a cohort. There's a new one starting. Or you have the one-on-one executive uh, coach. So that's kind of the equivalent of like, you now have a personal trainer, you can work through these issues with them. So I think that the different modalities for different individuals based on a diagnostic and a development path for where you want to get. Um, and I think kind of going back to the exercise education parallel, uh, the hardest part about exercise isn't deciding which machine to go on once you get to the gym, whether you go on the treadmill or the elliptical or the bike. They're all cardio workouts. You're going to end sweating with an endorphin rush. The hardest part of exercise is getting to the damn gym. <laughs> I think the same thing about education, right? Like it's, it's yeah. the hard part is motivating somebody every single day, even when they don't want to, to learn and to apply that learning on their job. And so I think that, um, yeah, so the kind of high level vision, build a gym for learning. I think the gym that we want to build probably looks more like a Peloton than a 24 hour fitness, where it's this like very, high motivation, high usage experience. Um, and so that's kind of the, that is the longer term vision of what we're building towards. I love that metaphor as well. So I have an exercise sports science degree undergrad. And so I, I was a personal trainer working with people. And it, to your point, it's exactly that. It's the motivation to get there in the first place. Like there's so many things that can work 
but to get them to invest that time or to make that commitment to it, that's what actually gets results and it applies with Strive as well uh, with people you're working with. And that's that's everything really is getting them in the gym, getting them there in the first place and then figuring out what the, the right modality is going to be for them, whether it be more of a self-paced thing or like you said, with more in depth with the personal trainer. And and one thing you mentioned too is working with an executive coach. How has that experience like been and would you suggest that to you know to other entrepreneurs or founders out there as well? Totally. Um, so I've had a phenomenal experience. Um, I, you know, I think as with everything, it depends on who the executive coach is and who sure. the client is. And that if you are someone who is excited and motivated and leaning into the experience, you are going to position yourself to get a lot out of it. And if you work with somebody who is capable and confident and uh, 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 experienced, then you're going to get a lot out of it. It's been, it was, it was a transformational for me. Um, I think uh, we met every other week for, Originally, an hour we would go on walks. Actually, when when COVID hit, or actually, I moved, so it was a little bit harder for us to meet in person. Uh, and then he ended up moving as well, um, and so we would meet every other week over over Zoom. Um, and it was a it was an amazing experience. I think uh, highly highly suggested. I would definitely recommend it to other early stage founders, um, and I would suggest also for early stage founders to do therapy. I think that uh, like the inner game of leadership of being a founder is as important as the outer game of the actual strategy and the um, the tactics that you take as a company to grow. And so I would highly suggest that, that founders focus on that inner game through some combination of executive coaching and therapy. And to go along with that as well, have there been any particular books that have been helpful, whether you know personal or professional along the way in the last number of years or ones you just enjoyed that you would suggest to people? Yeah, so I think that there are uh, a few books that I would recommend, and these books are probably more uh, about the interpersonal components and the strategic yeah. components. Uh, so I think that from an interpersonal perspective, Crucial Conversations, uh, that is about how to have hard conversations. Uh, that is a book that will help you as a founder. That is a book that will help you as a as a husband or as a wife or a partner. It'll help you uh, as a parent, et cetera. So I think that's a great book. Uh, that is at the core of the kind of difficult conversations that course that we teach. Um, the second book that I would recommend is uh, another, I'm going to do three quick personal ones, the management related ones. The second is what got you here won't get you there about the transition from being an individual contributor to being a manager. Um, and then the third one, I think Radical Candor, which is obviously very uh, common in Silicon Valley. Um, I think that there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good work there. I think that just the title alone, I think it's a little bit misleading. Um, so I think that it's worth kind of understanding some of the core frameworks from that. Um, I think in terms of books about the founder journey uh, and kind of more like the startup strategy work, I honestly like nothing immediately comes to mind as this was transformational to read. Uh, I think that the things that I've read about startups that I enjoy the most, I think that uh, I watched the YC startup school videos. I think those are stellar. Um, I read all of the Paul Graham, maybe not all of, but I read a lot of Paul Graham essays. I think that his essays are tremendous. Um, I think Keith Raboy uh, is an investor who, um, you know, somewhat controversial maybe, but I think that listening to his podcasts, uh, he's kind of all over, he's been on a lot of podcasts. I think that his podcast uh, episodes are really good. He did one with Eric Torenberg on Venture Stories about like kind of Keith Raboy talks a little bit about everything or something like that was the title. Um, I would recommend that. I think that gives a good window into uh, how to start a startup. So I think that, yeah, the, the YC resources are probably better than any book, I would say. So. Yeah, those those are stellar. I mean, there's so many of them. And there's a, it's really well organized, too, how they, I don't know if they just updated it recently, or you can kind of filter some things as well. Uh, I think those mm -hmm. are those are great. And 
And one thing just quickly, I know we could probably talk about this in an entire episode, but yeah. with Minerva Project, I mean, this is such an ambitious like company organization, I should say that you were a part of. I, I'm just curious from that from that experience, like were there a couple things you took away or things you'd mention to people who are maybe trying to build, well, not, not necessarily a school, even be like an educational program or, or just anything at all that stands out from that experience of being at the Minerva Project? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, and I think, and I'll talk about maybe what we took most from Minerva to the Strive experience. Um, yeah. Every educational experience is a function of who, what, and how. So who is teaching it? What are they teaching? And how are they teaching it? Uh, I think that most people, when thinking about school, think about the value in the, in that order. They think who matters the most, what they teach second, and how is third. I actually think it's probably the inverse, um, uh, or at least I think how is probably the most important part. So I would just say for anybody who is creating an educational organization or who wants to do something that is really around personal development and transformation, um, obsess over the pedagogy uh, and obsess over the actual kind of learning methodology that I think where I see a lot of folks interested in online education go wrong is that they uh, just basically build interactive textbooks. So, you know, they say, okay, we're just going to create a video and the video is going to tell, you know, masterclass. Like we're going to have somebody watch a video of Steven Spielberg talk about filmmaking. Like if that's, as, if that's all it takes to be a great filmmaker is to watch a video about filmmaking, then textbooks would have replaced teachers like <laughs> centuries ago. Yeah. And learning is about a lot more than just the content absorption. It's really around the application and reflection, that kind of deliberate practice. Um, so uh, uh, I think that's kind of like a major takeaway from the Minerva experience. Minerva obsessed over pedagogy. Um, they obsessed over using grades to incentivize students for far transfer. So for example, freshman year at Minerva, everybody studied four, four classes, critical thinking, creative thinking, effective communication, and effective interaction. Right. So those classes sound really different from most college classes. So they did really focus on the what. Uh, in sophomore through senior year, you had a more traditional curriculum where you studied you know, economics or political science, things that you would find at most colleges. But sophomore through senior year, your grades for your freshman year classes were actually living grades. And they would move up and down based on your ability to apply that original skill in a novel context. So let's say you're in a junior year biology class and you are giving a presentation you would be graded on both the content of the presentation and you would be graded on the quality of your presentation skills, right? So your freshman year grade on effective communication would be moving up and down. Mm. So it's an example of like really obsessing over how and using technology in a super creative way to get people to think and to incentivize people to think about bar transfer and about application in a later context. So I think that's like the one concept that I would take and encourage from Minerva. And I think the, the, the problem with that is like, a lot of the kind of ed tech future of learning crowd that's that's frustrating for them to hear because it it breaks the vision that all you need is great content and then it's infinitely scalable right yeah. so um i think that that's where a lot of ed tech businesses uh are struggle i think something like masterclass to me is uh, edutainment it's really more entertainment than it is education and I think then they can get away with it. But uh, I think simply like putting a video up does not create a learning experience. Absolutely. There's way more to it than, than that, obviously. And you you would be the one to know that from your experience uh, in the last yeah. number of years with going through this. And I think people who are in that tech space should take that to heart and, and understand that. And where can people go to learn more about Strive and connect with you, Will? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, 
follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, that's kind of the only platform we're really investing in on a social side. So unfortunately, Strive is a, uh, a name that has a lot of companies. So try to find <laughs> the right Strive, which is strive.co, management training uh, and leadership development. So find us on LinkedIn. Um, uh, you can follow me, Will Hodling. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's some combination of snarky tweets and useful ones. So uh, you'll have to wait. You'll have to wade through the noise to get to some signal in there. Um, the perfect combo. And yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, kind of like depending on how good of a night's sleep I got, I think is the determining factor on that ratio. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to just email me, will at strive.co. Um, the, the number one ways that you could help if you're out there listening and thinking this is interesting. Uh, number one is, do you know a company that needs great management training and leadership development? Um, send me an email, introduce me to the folks there who are making decisions about their kind of training approach. I think the answer is every company needs management training and leadership development. depends if, if the company is bought in and knows that yet. Um, and the second is we're hiring. So we're looking for exceptional engineers. So uh, uh, that's one role. And the second role that we're looking for right now is on the kind of marketing and growth side. So those are two other, two other ways that, that you could help if you're listening and want to chip in. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link everything as well in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. So you can find Strive much more easily that way as well if you're, if you're having trouble finding it and link everything kind of discussed in this episode as well. And Will, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully something in here was helpful for the listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week. I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.